Welcome to the Coffee House Junkie Audio Podcast. I am your host, Matt Mulder. The coffee den is now open. Thank you once again for joining me at the Coffee Den, and a big welcome to new listeners to the show. Many of you are joining the Coffee Den from SoundCloud and Podomatic, as well as Apple iTunes. I'm sure you'll enjoy this episode. Uh, One listener wrote me recently saying, it is good to hear your voice again. Well, thank you. Thanks, Anna. If you would like to comment or share your thoughts about the show, the easiest way to do that is to visit the website, and that's coffeehousejunkie.net. And who knows, I might even uh, read one of your comments on the podcast. This show is unofficially sponsored by Circa Celeste, a cafe located in historic downtown Racine, Wisconsin, just a block from Monument Square and within walking distance of the harbor. Visit them today or check out their website. It is circaceleste.net. Here's what's coming up in this episode. When was the last time you wrote a letter? Not an email, but a handwritten letter with pen, paper, envelope, and postage. Well, in this episode, we'll learn about a legacy of letters. Uh, First, here's something to do with poetry, jazz, and a rainy afternoon. Sometimes a few notes follow you for days or weeks or years. Sometimes a line of poetry haunts you like a memory, like a memory you can't recall. It's like rain. It permeates the air, wets the ground, and makes tea taste more pronounced. Here's part of a story I can share with you. After I was at university studying art and design... I found an audio CD in a music store titled Jazz for a Rainy Afternoon. What attracted me to the album, a compilation really, was the fact that the cover art reminded me of a sexier version of Gustave Caillebotte's famous Parisian painting. I purchased the audio CD. It was background music initially. Something to edge off lonely days as a poor graduate beginning a career in graphic design. About the same time, I discovered and purchased a copy of William Kistler's poetry book, American February. I have always enjoyed poetry and music, but reading Kistler's work was rigorous for me. Light verse and traditional poems, you know, the variety that fill American and English schoolbook anthologies, were what I was familiar with. But Kistler's poetry was a new dish for my inexperienced palate. Further, the musical selection of jazz from a rainy afternoon audio CD grew from a background soundtrack to a broader musical understanding. A line from one of Susan L. Daniels' poems captured my attention a while ago. The way jazz and poetry sometimes do. The speaker in the poem answers a question, so, do you like jazz? By saying, the answer is no, I live it sometimes. That is what I have come to enjoy about the complicated progression in a song or a poem that avoids a clean resolution. Jazz and poetry work their way into me. It takes me down that familiar path of a rainy day afternoon, a common enough subject, but it is a variation of that theme. Never the same way twice, 
Like reading a poem as a schoolboy, and reading it later as a graduate, and later as a professional. It is the same poem printed on the page, but different, always different, but familiar, because you live it. There's more to the story, but I'll share it with you on another rainy day afternoon. book is a collection of letters and pages. The week before Father's Day a few years ago, I had completed a book design project that was a legacy of letters from a decorated World War II hero. Or so that is what the back copy text on the book read. Reading a manuscript like that at times seemed voyeuristic. The compelling part of the book was the context of knowing that the author was three when his father died, suddenly. He grew up hearing friends and family tell him, You sure look like your daddy. Or, I knew your dad. He was one of the best. The letters that the author collected for the book shared who his father was and what kind of man he was. But most importantly for the author... It was the only way to hear the voice of a father he never knew. At times, during the process of designing the cover and page layout, I glimpsed that boyish tenderness of the author, now in his sixties, as he ached for the presence of his father. I cherished Father's Day all the more as I thought of the author. A couple of things come to mind as I wrapped up the project and sent it to press. First, the last handwritten letter I received was from my oldest child who placed it in my boot for me to find one morning. It was a simple note written in colored pencil. It was placed into my journal. I glance at it periodically. Last time I received a handwritten letter in the mailbox was years ago. There are, of course, the seasonal holiday letters that begin filling my mailbox every year between Thanksgiving and New Year's Day. They usually arrive as letters printed out on decorative stationery purchased at Kinko's or Office Depot. But handwritten letters, do people still do that in our culture? Secondly, the legacy left behind of those letters written prior to and during and after a major historical event impressed me. What kind of legacy might we leave our children and grandchildren with a mountain of unmemorable text messages? What will our tweets and status updates mean a half century from now? Will Twitter be obsolete by then? Or Facebook? Can you imagine your grandchildren asking, What's Twitter? After you explain the whole social media birth of microblogging, they giggle and say, Twitter is so 2012. I can't believe how primitive that seems. Emails may convey some of the gravitas of a written or typed letter. However, as ludite as this sounds, I still have handwritten letters from family and friends placed in an old shoebox. Letters and notes from a woman who became my wife are stored in a similar fashion. A typed note from my grandfather, when age had crippled his hands and handwriting was difficult, that is placed in a book of his poems as a reminder and memento. As a child, my grandmother 
wrote a brief letter to me each birthday and placed a stick of gum in between the folds. I looked forward to that letter each year. I can't attach a stick of gum to an email. Besides, it is difficult to imagine anyone in our culture waiting, anticipating, and enjoying a letter that arrives annually. Everything is so urgent, almost panicked. Why isn't someone responding to my email, text, tweets? In my own life, I noticed how differently I process social media and online content. There lacks a linear stretch of the intellect when processing clusters of data points from Twitter and Facebook, even Huffington Post, etc. My attention span fatigues when I have to wade through a barrage of emails, updates, and tweets. Yet, I enjoy the long articles in the Atlantic Monthly, though I've seen them getting shorter, and the London Review of Books, and others like it. It stimulates my mind. 700-word news articles, for the most part, kind of bore me. There's nothing there but a nut graph. No context, no history, no personality or narrative trajectory. All the necessary information is front-loaded to the first paragraph, maybe even the second paragraph. Because the newsroom editors know the statistics, most readers do not read an entire article. Just a Google-like or Wikipedia-like democratized collection of information. There's nothing there to engage with. Nothing to challenge my mind, beliefs, or values. A book on, let's say, the Battle of Argenco offers nuances that blog posts, tweets, and text messages just do not offer. Reading through a legacy of letters like, like that book I sent to press captures the exchange of ideas in a sustained generational conversation between a father and a son. The more our culture engages in a scatterbrained conflagration of data items, Civil and engaging conversation, like letter writing, may also become obsolete. This morning, while waiting for a bus, I saw a man reach in his pocket, pull out a knife, and slit open a stamped envelope. He carefully opened a three-page handwritten letter and slowly began to read. To avoid being any more a voyeur, I focused my attention elsewhere for the next 20 minutes until the bus arrived. As we boarded, I caught two words on the last page of the letter. Soon we were swallowed by the bus and deposited to our separate destinations. The man, his knife, and letter disappeared. But the thought remained, and also a question, who still writes handwritten letters? The thought of a handwritten letter in a stamped envelope haunts me as I reflect on how smartphone usage, social media sites, and the endless barrage of emails has changed my thinking and in some regards my behavior, not to mention how my spelling and grammar seem to seem to have increasingly deteriorated. Consider how emails, social media updates, and smartphone use is not actionable, to use a David Allen expression. Consider how to eliminate access data and focus on learning through connections the way many geniuses and polyglots learn. What would it look like if one was to focus on communication and connection through handwritten letters? That is a challenging question. Would the people 
you mail letters to actually respond to the letters sent. After all, handwritten letters do not feature a social media button that allows readers to quickly post on Facebook or Twitter. Maybe the old-fashioned handwritten letter does have a technological advantage. Remember that man on the bus with his knife and letter? The last two words on his three-page letter read, Call me. It is a December afternoon, and he is working from a coffee house in Asheville, North Carolina, called The Dripolator, known as The Drip by locals. From where he sits by the front window, he sees cars and trucks make their way up Biltmore Avenue on their way to the city's downtown area. The new MacBook Pro he purchased earlier this year is open in front of him on a black lacquered table next to a large mug of coffee latte. The window tables offer patrons the unique opportunity to sit cross-legged on a cushion. The tables at the west-facing windows remind him of a Japanese tea house. Though he only once visited Japan, the experience continues to be a touchstone in many respects. The new freedom of writing remotely, a Wi-Fi nomad, tips towards technocratic swagger. Too quickly... Thankfulness and gratitude disappear before the illusion of self-reliance. The barista at the bar noisily works up a double espresso for a customer. He glances about the room after a deep sip from the cooling latte. For the first time this afternoon, he takes in the scene, notices a lot of university students wrapping up studies from the semester. It is 2007. He recalls the tragic Virginia Tech shooting earlier this year. It seems so distant now, but it was only eight months ago. So much has happened this year, not just nationally or internationally, but personally as well. His entrepreneurial book publishing efforts have been a minor success. Not his writings, but nowhere near the success of the release of the final Harry Potter book. It sold 11 million copies in a single day. And then there's earthquakes in Peru, in Chile. And what about that comet a couple months ago? You could see it without the use of a telescope. Some of the drips coffee addicts smash away on keyboards. Others surf the wild world of the web. And then there are a few who write in notebooks. These handwriting persons attract his attention and appear anachronistic. Who still writes in cursive? Some of these people use primary composition notebooks. You know the ones. Wide-ruled, 100 pages, black-and-white, full-marbled covers. Others scribble in the trendy moleskin notebooks. The asymmetry of the new and old technology is sublime in its contrast. Despite the Wi-Fi access, patrons at the drip are actually writing in cursive. Regardless of proper penmanship, they are writing in notebooks and journals. Not typing directly into cyberspace, or IMing, or emailing, or blogging, but writing after the fashion of the proto-modern pre-technology age, with stylus and paper. Is this cultural regression? A return to the Stone Age? This is 2007, after all. Eight billion text messages are sent daily. 
years from now, someone will write a manuscript on the topic of this lost craft of handwriting. A literary agent will help pitch it to a major publishing house, who will then in turn sell it to the public reader. His book will be reviewed in the Times Literary Supplement and other prestigious publications. He will write the book because he feels he is missing something in life. The author feels this way because he would come to realize, amid the flurries of text messages and deluge of emails, that he could not notice or even recognize the handwriting of his closest friend. In this last decade, many research studies record the benefits of teaching cursive handwriting in the early education period. Proponents insist that learning cursive increases cognitive and basic motor skills. Detractors suggest it is an archaic form of communication, like stone tablets or 8-track tapes. One university study will submit a report that students who use handwriting in their class and lecture notes capture the big ideas and nuances better than students who use their laptop computers to dictate the very same notes. Sure, the students with the classroom laptops are more accurate with the data, but do not know what the data represents. Basically, they have the facts, but cannot connect the dots. Amid the aroma of freshly ground coffee beans at the drip, and the intoxication of the illusion of career success, he has not connected the dots either. Two years ago, he was laid off. Through the assistance of co-workers, he was able to stay employed at the same company and live out the dream of publishing books. He was employed to design, print, market, and distribute books of a favorite national columnist. The entrepreneurial efforts still remain profitable for the author and publisher. But it will be years before he recovers from the hangover of technocratic snobbery. Eventually, his newly acquired laptop with latest design and media editing software applications will become outdated. In a few years, hard times will fall upon him and his household, and then one autumn, he will find a box of unused stationery when all hope appears exhausted. As the nights grow longer and colder, there will be no money for heating fuel. In that dark season, he will return to the vanishing art of handwriting letters. Years of assaulting keyboards with fingertips have atrophied his cursive skills. But in a couple months, he will find the ease of the up and down stroke and return to the elegance of handwriting with pen. But that is years from now. It is, after all, 2007. He takes a copious gulp from his large coffee latte, looks about the drip with satisfaction, scans the news headlines on an opened web browser. The top story of the day include a record $6 million raised for a presidential candidate. Seems kind of early for presidential news, he thinks. With that kind of fundraising capability, maybe Ron Paul could be the next American president. Or not. A lot can happen in a year. He places his latte on the black lacquer table and begins composing an email regarding the successful sales numbers for the fiscal year 2007. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Coffee House Junkie audio podcast. 
This episode is produced by your host and coffeehouse junkie, me, Matt Mulder. This show is unofficially sponsored by Circa Celeste, a cafe located in historic downtown Racine, Wisconsin. Check them out at circaceleste.net. Special thanks to John Hayes for permission to use his song Epiphany Road between the segments. My introduction to his music was through a dear friend of mine, Barbie Angel. John told me a little story behind that song that I didn't know. He wrote Epiphany Road for Sandy Maxey, who is a friend of Barbie's. I had the pleasure of meeting Sandy one night after a book signing event featuring Roseanne Cash. It was her memoir that was released. And uh, I know there's a lot of name dropping here, but, but when I asked John for permission to feature his music on this show, I had no idea how many points of connection we shared. Anyway, as a guitarist, uh, John Hayes enjoys several musical incarnations from honky-tonk country to jazz. Uh, his current incarnation involves old blues. Check out his music on Bandpage. More details about John Hayes and links to his music are available on the website. Uh, that website is coffeehousejunkie.net. Taking us out of the show is John Hayes' Epiphany Road with special dedication to Sandy Maxey. Thanks again for visiting and join me next time at the Coffee Den. Coffee Den.